You're listening to CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, and this is Speaking for Change. I'm Kike Roach. For the past six years, I've been the Unifor National Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Toronto Metropolitan University. The mandate of the chair is to create a hub of interaction between social justice activists and the academic community. In 2011, Winnie Ng and Salman Khan started Social Justice Week, and it's since continued under my stewardship. Every year, it has brought together TMU students, staff, faculty, and the broader community to raise awareness and inspire action. Over the years, we've hosted dozens of notable speakers, centered essential conversations, and encouraged and supported countless students to become more engaged in their communities. The fall of 2022 marked the final edition of Social Justice Week. A dozen years of events has left us a valuable archive of recordings touching on issues that remain extremely relevant today. So we wanted to share some of them with you. Speaking for Change is a weekly series of recordings from the past decade-plus of Social Justice Week, a space to reflect on and celebrate the work of progressive changemakers. This episode presents a keynote talk by M. Nurbesi Philip from Social Justice Week 2017 called Black Belonging at the Crossroads of Art, Culture, and Human Rights. It was part of the Mandela ECI Lecture Series, a unique series of keynote talks by renowned Black public intellectuals and artists. The series was presented by Social Justice Week in collaboration with TMU's Office for Equity and Community Inclusion. This talk spotlights one of Canada's most important contemporary writers and revolutionary thinkers, M. Norbesi Philip, whose aim has always been to make us see what has gone unseen. As an award-winning poet, essayist, novelist, and playwright, she writes about memory upon the margin of history, in the shadow of empire, and at the frontier of silence. Her writing engages in genre-breaking exploration of memory, history, and the transatlantic slave trade. In this talk, Philip draws from her latest book, Blank, to explore questions of belonging, race, politics, art, and the so-called multicultural nation. I don't know how many of you know that Mandela's clan name was Madiba. I'm sure some of you know that. It came from a chief who ruled in the 18th century, and many refer to him by that name. And some of you may know also that Mandela was unable to shed tears because his tear ducts had been blocked by the limestone dust when he was imprisoned and made to work in a limestone mine. So this is a very simple poem I wrote over the last couple of days, a conversation with Madiba. Madiba, they say you cannot shed tears because you cried all the tears of the world. Why then do the mothers cry in Burma, Myanmar, and Somalia? The fathers and brothers, the sisters in Syria, the children in Chicago and Congo, the children of the children of war, sisters of brothers and brothers of sisters. Why, Madiba? if you shed all the tears of the world. Ah, Madiba, I only play with you because I know it was limestone dust that stopped your tears, where they held you prisoner, that stopped your crying, 
But I have a question, Madiba, I need you to think about what happens to all the unshed tears of the world. Where do they go? The tears of my sisters and my sister's sisters, the tears of Winnie, of your children, of the brothers and the brothers' brothers. Madiba, what does a tear that is not shed look like? Do they collect within great, still pools of mourning for those lost long, long ago and today but still with us, for ourselves and others whom we have othered and who have othered us and themselves? Madiba, if the tear is not shed, is it still a tear? Can we cry invisible tears, Madiba? There are so many tears we need to shed, Madiba, and have shed for us. So many that some will remain unshed. Will we uncry with you, Madiba, the unshed tears that you and we have gathered? For we must cry for that which should never have happened and which should not be happening. But we will also cry, Madiba, for joy, for every step we have taken and take to that place where no one loses their tears because of limestone dust. I want to start with an image of a woman in a darkened room at night on a tiny island. It is before the time of electricity, so there is a lit lamp on a dining table around which sit three small children. The woman pours a drink called cocoa tea from cup to cup. For the first pour, the cups are held close together. For the second pour, the cup from which the liquid is poured into the other cup is held high up. The children are transfixed by the activity mesmerizing, almost hypnotic in its rhythm. This is how you cool cocoa tea. That woman was my mother and the children, me and two of my siblings. Something was being created by these small ritualistic acts that were probably taking place in every home on the island, Tobago. She, my mother, was cooling cocoa tea, but she was also creating a pool of love lit by lamplight. And that love would ripple out to family, to the island of my birth, Tobago, that now held us in its soft evening blackness, and to the Caribbean, that beautiful and cruel necklace of islands, stepping stones of volcanic and coral rocks between North and South America, and finally to Canada, or as we know it, Turtle Island. I believe that those early lessons in love of family, love of place, love of land is what allows me to love other places. Further, those early lessons learned in the Caribbean and learned often from the Caribbean would hold me and many like me, many of you here today, no doubt, or your parents in good stead. 
our cardboard grips as we call them, filled with dreams, ambitions, and hard-edged hope. Those undergirded us, allowing us to come to places like Canada, the USA, and Great Britain, not to mention places like Panama and Cuba, but places like the White North, places inherently hostile to us as black people and inimical to our well-being. It allowed us to challenge the laws and social mores that would hold us as inferior, the classic hewers of wood and drawers of water. A small quote from a poem I wrote many, many years ago, it remains unpublished. Those of us who grasp the hallowed of brown cardboard grips filled with winter vests, black cheeks ruddy with never seen frost, twisty and twirly, GCE passports, clothing pinned to notes, notes pinned to heads, filled with blackies tropical, going abroad, big country ambition, thermogene, tiger balm, and soft candle. Rub down well at night, you see, and make something of yourself. Remember the soles of your feet, and don't take cold. What did we take with us but the desire to leave? Oh, graved islands of grief-black women and memory, if places could grieve. There is another image, that of my father who, in another small town at a later time, would every evening bring light to the house by slowly pumping the gas lamp. The small net bag behind the glass chimney, glowing white as it illuminated the entire room. That would be another metaphor, the metaphor of lighting the world around us that would help me to see the role I and many like me would play as we left our islands of birth, creating yet another exodus, this time apparently voluntary, but all part of that original forced transportation terror-filled exile from Africa. And we carried that love with us. Love of home, love of family, love of language, albeit a forced language, but one which we had made our own. In Lukshide and Mama Luka Boo Boo. It went like, Mama Luka Boo Boo. <laughs> love of laughter, and last but perhaps most importantly, love of freedom which we were willing and prepared to struggle for wherever we landed. There's a poem I wrote some years ago during the Rhodesia Wharf liberation. The title is John Way. It was the symbol of the ZANU-PF party. And John Way in Shauna means the cock or cockerel. Just a short section from it. The don, and I talk about two drums, the don don and the bon go, they're talking drums. The don don weaves, we had one dream, a rhythm, freedom would gift. The bon go, it could not, replies. We had two dreams, the don don weaves the rhythm, yesterday, not one more shall die. The bon go replies, many and one salted the Atlantic. The dawn dawn weaves three dreams, a rhythm we had tomorrow, we would return before. 
The Bongon replies, before we sowed the new world with the seed of difference to harvest a strangeness beyond. The Dondon weaves redemption. To labor seven years, the Gongon replies in the cane fields of the soul. The Dondon weaves the rhythm, will you die for freedom? Did you die for truth? The Gongon replies, whose truth, whose freedom? Today, the Dawn Dawn weaves a rhythm, was the year of the cockerel. The Gong Gong replies, Yong Wei. And make no mistake, in the face of a long le legacy of enslaved, as enslaved peoples, as people who were terrorized, brutalized, and murdered with impunity, and then excluded from the rights and benefits of society, love, any kind of love, I'm tempted to say, in the face of that, is a deep and abiding act of resistance. To love, to cling to a land that has been the source of such biblical tribulation is a miraculous act. Have we been historically traumatized? Most certainly. Do we live in a context described as post-traumatic slave syndrome? a phrase coined by Dr. Joy Debris, yes. Are too many of our communities riven by crime? Do we from cradle to grave suffer the ordinary and not so ordinary acts of anti-black racism that result in dropouts and underachievers? Are we over-policed and underserved? Are too many of our children streamed into non-academic streams? Are too many of us caught up in what is referred to as the justice system? Are too many of our LGBTQ communities underserved and discriminated against? Yes to every one of those questions. It is therefore all the more remarkable that we continue to express astonishing acts of love, compassion, accomplishments, and achievements that we continue to live lives of honor, dignity, raising children in a city where daycare is essentially unaffordable and reasonably priced rental housing scarce, where home ownership is beyond the dreams of too many. We African Canadians, as we are called, African descended people resident here, and that includes for me the many, many who may be without status, those who have come from the continent, as we refer to Africa, Muslims, Christians, and those who follow more traditional spiritual ways of honoring the world and the creator, however we may wish to describe that relationship with something larger than us. Those who have come from the Caribbean, and last but not least, those African Canadians who have been here for many, many generations. We, the Afrosporic, as I call the scattering of Africans around the world, or diasporic communities, continue to struggle to bring changes, to demand changes in societies like this one, changes which have humanized this city and therefore this province and country in ways too many to list. At this point, I just want to uh, go to uh, the opening essay in a blank called Jammin Still, and I have some excerpts from there. I write memory on the margins of history in the shadow of empire and on the frontier of silence. 
I write against the grain as an unembedded, disappeared poet and writer in Canada. I write from a place of multiple identities, black, African-descended, female, immigrant or interloper, and Caribbean, which often, by their very nature, generate hostilities within the body politic of a so-called multicultural nation. And one better place to write an introduction to this work than Tobago, the island of my birth, to which I have been making annual pilgrimages for the last 35 years. It was here, little more than a quarter of a century ago, I wrote Echoes in a Stranger Land, the introduction to my first collection of essays, Frontiers, Essays and Writings on Racism and Culture. The title Frontiers was a play on one of its meanings, margin, whose connotation within social context often suggests a sense of being overlooked. The frontier, however, despite its historical links with colonial discourse, suggested to me a place where anything was possible, a place where one could, because one was far away from the usual systems of control, experiment and try out different ways of being, identities even, including writing as a different way of being in the world. Behind the frontier was the hinterland. As a black writer, one has to continually strategize about how to use what is intended to incapacitate you to your own advantage. Echoes in a Stranger Land grappled with issues and ideas of exile, home and belonging as they pertain to living in Canada, a former dominion and an unsettler state. And I use that word because when we think of the word settler, when you look at the dictionary, a mother settles a baby. And, and there is a meaning as in pacify, but I think the European has unsettled and disrupted so many areas in this world. And so I prefer to use the word unsettler state. At the time of writing, the Young Street riots, as they came to be known, were happening, sparked by the Rodney King tragedy in the US. Now, some 25 years later, as I reflect on those issues, I gaze out at the still, astonishingly blue ocean, and once again I ask myself where I truly belong, wondering whether I have gained any greater insights over the past 25 years. Labels remain, but I am now considerably older and embrace the idea that while indigenous to the world, I remain exiled, possibly permanently, since although African descended, I am not indigenous to that continent, nor am I indigenous to the Caribbean, given that my ancestors were brought into these spaces as enslaved labor after the eradication of the indigenous populations. And being immigrant to Canada, I count myself among the unbelonged there, quote unquote. Despite these facts, however, I call at least two places home, Tobago, because it continues to stock my heart with its beauty and has over the years provided a place for me to ground myself and from which to write. And Canada, because my children were born there, here, and there, here is where I have done my life's work as a writer. Although I work always from the rock bed of the Caribbean and in particular Tobago, the work I've done could only have been done in Canada. And although my entry to Canada was as a graduate student, I count myself among the immigrants this country has accepted. In the 70s and 80s, the remarkable Caribbean thinker Walter Rodney 
helped to develop the idea of being politically black, arguing that often the racist act and actor failed to discriminate in terms of his target, Pakistani, African, or Caribbean, the brute force of racism thus landed equally among peoples of color. By the 90s, however, the broad brush approach that allowed African-Caribbean people, continental Africans and Asians to gather under the rubric of being black in the political sense, particularly in the UK, had fragmented into the particularities of identities, Asian, South and East, Caribbean, continental African, and other cultural markers of identity. In the 25 years, the list of markers has rightly expanded to include LGBTQ people as well as the disabled. Back then, 25 years ago, I was reading George Lamming's The Pleasures of Exile, in which he writes, the pleasure and paradox of my own exile is that I belong wherever I am. Now I read The Lights of Pointe Noire by Alain Mabancou, the French Congolese writer, who, on his first visit back to his home, some 25 years after leaving, observes, I look for reasons to love this town, all smashed up though it is, and consumed by anarchic growth. Like a long-lost lover, faithful as Ulysses' dog, it reaches out its long, shapeless arms to me, and day after day shows me how deep its wounds are, as though I could cauterize them with the wave of a magic wand. Unlike Mabanku's response to his home, Tobago gives me many reasons to love it, most related to its natural beauty. But the wounds that Mabanku talks about, which are the wounds of colonialism, are present all the same, though at times better hidden. We cannot try as we might quarterite the wound of colonialism. It separates, bleeds, sometimes extrudes pus, sometimes appears healed, but aches always. On some days, however, I gaze out at the ocean, count the shades of blue, and am content, wounds and all. 25 years ago, the Young Street riots would lead to a government-sanctioned investigation by Stephen Lois, who would identify and name the deeply systemic roots of anti-Black racism in Ontario. It would be the latest in a string of official reports on the plight of African Canadians. Then, NDP Premier Bob Ray, who had commissioned the report, accepted many of the report's findings, and under his governance, Ontario saw the establishment of the Anti-Racism Secretariat. Under the subsequent Mike Harris government, Conservative government, the Secretariat was promptly disbanded, and one of the government's first actions was to permit the use of hollow-point bullets by the police, despite the government publicly observing that the black community would be unhappy about this. One of those bullets would kill the unarmed First Nations man, Dudley George, in 1995, in what was known as the Ipawash Crisis. Black communities in Canada continue to be challenged by issues of police carding of young black men and women, unfulfilled expectations, and aborted potential. Unwarranted killings by African Canadians by the police continue to plague our communities. In the passage of time, we have seen the opening to great and vocal opposition of an Afrocentric alternative primary school, 
which while welcome, actually speaks to a failure of the mainstream educational system to provide a curriculum and environment that meets the needs of young African-Canadian students. A subsequent attempt to start an Afrocentric high school at Oakwood Collegiate in the Sinclair Oakwood area in 2011, the neighborhood I have lived in for the last 40 years, was greeted by great hostility by the neighborhood, despite the fact that the school has traditionally had a large number of African-Canadian students. Yet another example of how African-Canadians are made to feel at welcome in the city. A quarter of a century later has also seen the emergence of Black Lives Matter, the brainchild of queer and trans women from the United States, which has spawned offshoots in different cities in the US, Canada, and overseas. A response to the wanton police shootings of African-American men and women, BLM's name appeared to simply state a fact at the heart of which was actually a wish, that black lives ought to matter in the face of utter disregard on the part of law enforcers, which offends and outrages many in the black community. It seems redundant that one has to state that black lives matter. Indeed, in a capitalist economy, black lives have always mattered. Unfortunately, however, not for their intrinsic value, but for their use value. The financial system we live with and in today has its roots in a system of speculative financing that was developed during the transatlantic trade in Africans. And through this uh, system of promissory notes, it allowed for someone in Liverpool, for instance, to purchase an African in West Africa, have him or her transported to the Caribbean or the Americas for sale, and receive payment for that transaction in Liverpool. Many European nations and Europeans made their fortunes on a trade at the heart of which was the purchase and sale of Africans. This trade represents the first attempt at globalization, and it was based on black skin. It is in this sense that I say black lives have always mattered, and it is this essential dehumanization of black lives that generates the need for us to state today what should be redundant, that black lives do matter for their intrinsic worth. It has been remarkable, however, how the assertion of what should really not need to be stated that black lives matter becomes an irritant for so many who insist that it is exclusionary or in response that all lives matter or blue lives matter. As if the very statement that black lives matter negates the value of other lives. Is it that perhaps unconsciously those who oppose the slogan understand that acceptance of and acting on the fact that black lives do indeed matter would shift so much that we have taken for granted that they grow uncomfortable at the possibility of such a seismic change. For make no mistake, if black lives truly mattered, or if First Nations or indigenous lives truly mattered, speaking of the two genocides at the heart of the unsettling of the Americas and the Caribbean, we would indeed be living in an altered universe.
In those 25 years, the U.S. did the unexpected and twice elected a biracial African-American man to be president and commander-in-chief, and then turned on a dime and elected a wealthy white businessman who appears cut from the cloth of the classic colonial governor whose stated goal is to make America great again. And my acronym is MAGA, you know, the MAGAites. And there's a certain kind of biblical, can't you just see the MAGAites, you know, going to build the wall? <laughs> the MAGAites gathering. <laughs> Those of us who come from cultures that have been riven by colonialism understand its destructive impact. Wherever they conquered and or unsettled colonial powers, disregarded indigenous and local traditions and practice all of which would have been centuries, if not millennia old, trampling them or forbidding them as they did the drum in Trinidad or the imbira, the musical instrument which the Shona people of Zimbabwe used to speak to their ancestors or their potlatch in Canada and all the other practices. People's languages and customary ways of running their lives, practicing their religions and governing themselves was of no consequence. Custom, tradition, mores, laws were all discounted and dismantled if they got in the way of the colonial project. And more times than not, it was the colonial governor who administered these destructive practices. In his flagrant and wanton disregard of tradition, in his dismissal of long accepted procedures and customs, in his wholesale abandonment of protocol and the established ways of governing, Trump hews closely to the role of the colonial governor who cut a wide swathe through conquered societies. Now listen to this, in 1782, among the complaints lodged against the colonial governor of Virginia, he has taken upon himself the right to preside over the body and limit debate. He states the questions and overrules in an arbitrary and threatening manner. He threatens and abuses all who speak anything contrary to his opinions. He meets privately with members and uses all of the arts of cajoling and threatening for his own ends. His behavior constitutes intolerable encroachments upon the liberties of both houses. That was 1702. All of which appear utterly familiar today. Colonized cultures and societies in Africa, Asia, the Americas, and the Caribbean all found ways to resist, but none could withstand the colonial onslaught, and they essentially either collapsed or developed dysfunctional ways of accommodating colonialism. These are the wounds Mabanku writes about. These are the wounds I witnessed in Trinidad and Tobago. These are the wounds of the First Nations and indigenous of this country live with. What is different this time is that for the first time, we're actually witnessing what that process of colonial destabilization would have looked like, and that it's a white developed country that is actually going through these ravages, the results of which of the older colonialism are states that today appear always to have been this way, poor, ravaged, war-torn. In the case of the US, we're witnessing a colonial threat to a democratic culture, and this is new, although not entirely unexpected, given the colonial antecedents of the US state. Consider for a macabre moment that Africa could not today support a slave trade. I insist we start from this difficult and possibly offensive place to better understand the enormity of what was done. 
to be able to sustain the removal of millions of healthy individuals over some five centuries, certain things have to be in place. There has to be potable water. There has to be the ability to grow crops to feed populations. There has to be an effective way of managing sexuality so that the group continues to replenish itself. There have to be adequate systems providing for childbirth so that infant and maternal mortality are kept at a minimum level. There has to be effective ways of training and educating the younger generation into how to live and survive in their environments. There have to be cultural systems that support people's human and spiritual needs for relationship with each other and with spiritual and religious forces. All these practices had to be in place to allow Africa to be the source of healthy people for a period of some five centuries. Today, as I write, there is now a famine, once again a repetition, in three African countries, Yemen, northern Nigeria, South Sudan, where some four million people are at risk of death. So I ask, what happened? I don't pretend to have the definitive answer. The answers are many and myriad. One small window for me, a philosopher whom I value quite a bit, Jewish, French-Jewish woman, Simone Weil, offers one that I accept. That Europe, having unsettled and uprooted itself within its own boundaries, set out around the world to unsettle and uproot others, first through colonialism, later wedded to capitalism, and later still to industrialization. Some have lived this traumatic process, some have witnessed it, others have turned their eyes from it. The universal result has been peoples of color being made stranger to and widowed of their own lands, widowed of their cultures. Climate change, wars, famine, unpredictable rains, the list is endless but it culminates in these times in our witnessing one of the largest mass movements of people fleeing those bereft lands for the Mecca of Europe and the West. As the cries mount from those places that they should go back to where they came from or stay where they are. Never mind, the West asserts. Never mind our wanderings over lands and seas to plant our flags in your countries and root out your languages and cultures to plant our own. Never mind the depredations we have inflicted. Never mind we have permanently uprooted you. Stay where you are in those very spaces that we, through our uprooting and unsettling, have made inhospitable for you. What can we do but grieve and unweep those tears with Madiba? We are now witnessing in the U.S. a split populace facing off against each other, and it's reminiscent of those historical examples of countries like India, where different ethnic groups traditionally shared common spaces, but under colonial rule were split between Hindu and Muslim. In the U.S., one half of the populace, including angry, white, disenfranchised voters, having thrown their lot in with the Pied Piper of dissension, revels in a new legitimacy given to blatant racism, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia, homophobia, and delights in banning and expulsion of immigrants and in walls erected between countries. The other half longs for that moral arc of justice that Martin Luther King spoke of. Both of these images are real aspects of the US, 
The upheaval in governance is the colonial onslaught writ large and taking place in a modern, developed, and technologically advanced state, the most powerful in the world. It is, I argue, a logical and predictable continuation of the colonial state now being run by a colonial governor. Indeed, states like Canada and the US and the many other countries of the Americas and the Caribbean, Australia as well, remain colonial states, most obviously in their relationship with their indigenous and African descended populations. Whether US democracy, unlike those earlier colonized cultures, is robust enough to resist and change this newest colonial attack is now the question that faces all of us. The consequences, as we are already witnessing, will impact all of us, the world in fact, whether or not we live in the US. In 1994, two years after the publication of Frontiers and four years after the release of Mandela, the system of apartheid in South Africa began the year after my birth in 1948 would come to an end. Many of us had spent the preceding years demonstrating against the regime's practices. Its Truth and Reconciliation Commission would become a model for other war-ravaged countries such as Northern Ireland and for Canada, beginning to reckon with its barbaric past vis-a-vis -vis its indigenous populations. I've often wondered how events may have been different if Truth and Reconciliation Commissions had been held in each and every Caribbean island as they came to independence and in the United States after the struggle for civil rights was apparently successful. How might a public witnessing of it, that which still defies naming, have changed the views of those who saw themselves as losers, those who demanded those statues erected to people like Robert E. Lee and so on should remain, those invested in retaining systems that exploited black and brown peoples in a struggle that succeeded in bringing democracy to the US and all those tiny Caribbean islands. Colonialism has constituted a long and sustained attack against the First Nations of this country and their cultures. The establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission into the Indian residential schools was, therefore, a significant, long overdue and welcome event in the course of the intervened 25 years. Its findings seem finally to awaken many unsettler Canadians to the brutal and brutalizing effects of colonialism on the indigenous peoples of this country. A very few years after my arrival in Canada in 1968, mercury contamination at the Grassy Narrows First Nation Reserve came to the public attention. Some 50 years later, in 2017, the river remains contaminated, as are the fish that live there. Residents drink bottled water as their tap water is also unfit for drinking. The health of the members of the reservation continues to be affected by the contamination. This remains a scandal, an obscene scandal of astonishing proportions, if only because of the length of time it has taken to not solve this problem, which has been normalized. And I know that yesterday an announcement was made about, I believe, $85 million that has been set aside for cleanup of the river. And I heard the commissioner, the environmental commissioner, speaking yesterday, and she said, I may be wrong, but the government knew that she was going to be producing her report, and so that applied pressure to them to make this announcement. 
This continuous mercury contamination remains a tangible and ongoing example of systemic racism in this country, celebrating 150 years of colonial existence. I am reminded of the water crisis in Flint, Michigan in 2014, in which the town's water was contaminated by lead, affecting mainly lower income and African Canadians. What is clear is that in the last 25 years, racism has remained an issue, manifesting in old and new ways. The World Wide Web is now a space where the most viciously racist comments can be made with little or no consequence. The new President of the United States, number 45, has by his rhetoric opened the floodgates even further. Beginning with his statements about Mexicans being rapists and Muslims being inherently terroristic, which has added fuel to, to an already inflammatory and racially charged situation. Casting our eyes more closely home here in Canada, we appear to have our own Trump light in Kelly Leach's test for Canadian values. And even more recently, Bill 62 from Quebec regarding women wearing the niqab and the burqa. My engagement with cultural issues through writing arises not simply because I'm a writer and poet who works in the cultural sector, but because African culture was a particular focus of attack by colonial powers. Uber missionary David Livingston was of the belief that the most effective way to bring Christianity to Africans was to first destroy their culture, then introduce commerce, then religion. He understood that culture underpinned everything. Africans were prohibited from speaking their languages, practicing their religions, playing their music. Even today, something that should be commonplace, the grooming and styling of hair, a fundamental aspect of any culture, generates a raft of responses from acceptance through prohibition and rejection on the part of non-Africans and great anxiety among black women. We've been told as I was in high school in Trinidad that we Africans and African descended people, unlike everyone else in that history classroom, I recall it clearly, we had no culture or history. Even as Europe, after having stole the continent's peoples, appropriated and stole both cultural artifacts and approaches to visual art that would lend new life to Western art. The erasure of the violent, exploitative relationship between colonized and colonized has been woven into the ensuing relationships. The weight and influence of African music and dance continues unabated as our musical forms and styles are appropriated and taken up by different groups and peoples around the world. The sound of modernity is inextricably linked to the sound of jazz. Hip-hop, for instance, is now a multi-billion industry influencing clothing and fashion. I mention this not with a view to prohibiting anyone, it is merely an observation. Let me observe further. None of this redounds to African peoples being any more respected as they move through life. We are no more esteemed or cherished for our contributions. In the wake of the last Grammy Award ceremony, Adele, having won Album of the Year, expressed bewilderment at what Beyonce had to do to earn one. Become white, perhaps, I thought. The question is at best naive. Adele herself has stated that in her early years as a singer in England, she would buy discarded cassette recordings of Etta James and practice trying to sound like her. 
Artists find their inspiration wherever they will. And I should add, I do like Adele's sound. But, <laughs> but what continues to escape too many is that the black singing voice in the Americas comes out of a particular and tragic history. In other words, there's a name and an address. As Lyndon Barrett, the African-American scholar, argues in blackness and value, seeing double, that voice and sound come out of a tragic history of pain, trauma, and a determination to make meaning of one's life no matter what. It is a sound lodged in a commitment to matter to and value oneself and one's community in the face of a culture that asserted that black lives lacked meaning and were irrelevant except and insofar as they were useful to white people. The same can be said of the astonishingly innovative production, particularly in music and dance, that is found in all Afrosporic communities in the Americas and the Caribbean. The only new instrument developed in the 20th century has been Pan, originally created in Trinidad by African-descended people out of cast-off steel drums. And the musical art forms reggae, dance, hall, zouk, rumba, calypso, they've spread around the world. One of Marxism's principles that I accept is that culture and its supporting system of production are inextricably linked. Afrosporic or diasporic African cultures and their ensuing arts have existed and continue to exist in exploitative and racist systems of production. Despite this, however, black people have continued to create value for themselves and assign meaning to their lives through their music and art. Indeed, I would say our singing and performing have been our healing, have been indeed our medicine. As are all forms of cultural expression, black cultures continue to generate apparently effortlessly. And as we healed ourselves, if only temporarily, we have continued to heal and humanize the world with our gifts, with the genius of our people. This generosity has seldom, if ever, been reciprocated. Black, a word that we fled from hiding in colored, in light brown or fair-skinned, in shabine and browning, until we embraced it in all its power. Black, a word made to do the difficult work of holding a people together in a tension-filled multiplicity. Black, that place of mystery, strength, and spirit within that often grounds me. And finally, black, which as many readers will rightly assume, riffs on the subject matter of this work. One black woman's attempt over time and space to grapple with and understand through writing how and why the simple and profound fact of being remains insufficient in our world. How and why being continues to be contingent on so much race, color, gender, class, sexuality, ability, age, and how through one's life work to make a difference, however small, for the better. That was author and poet M. Nerbesi Philip speaking at the event Black Belonging at the crossroads of art, culture, and human rights from Social Justice Week 2017. Thanks for listening to Speaking for Change on CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto a retrospective on Social Justice Week programming at Toronto Metropolitan University. Every week this semester, we're highlighting a talk or panel from the past 12 years of Social Justice Weeks. 
Tune in at the same time next week for a new episode. I'm your host, Kike Roach. Thanks for listening.